You're listening to On Development, a podcast of the Millennium Challenge Corporation, or MCC. MCC is an independent United States government international development agency whose mission is reducing poverty through economic growth. In part two of the conversation between Aisha House, MCC's Vice President of Congressional and Public Affairs, Sean Baker, USA's Chief Nutritionist, and MCC's Katerina Kat-Intep, Deputy Vice President of Sector Operations, the intersectionality between nutrition and challenges such as conflict and climate come to the fore of this important discussion. Sean K. Baker serves as the Chief Nutritionist for the U.S. Agency for International Development. In this position, he chairs the agency's Nutrition Leadership Council, oversees the vision and strategy of the agency's Center for Nutrition and the Bureau of Resilience and Food Security, and coordinates related efforts across USAID. He also guides USAID's investments and engagement with partners to address malnutrition in developing countries. Prior to joining USAID, Mr. Baker was the first director of nutrition at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He has over 30 years experience in global public health nutrition, including 25 years living in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. Katerina Intep is the Millennium Challenge Corporation's Deputy Vice President for Sector Operations and MCC's Department of Compact Operations. Ms. Intep's previous role was as Managing Director for Sector Operations. In that role, she advanced key issues and supported efforts to improve operational effectiveness. From 2006 to 2013, Ms. Intep served as MCC's Resident Country Director in Ghana, overseeing the implementation of the $547 million compact with Ghana. The program was focused on increasing agricultural productivity, diversifying into non-traditional crops, investing in infrastructure, and supporting community services development. Ms. Intept has worked in the field of economic development for more than 25 years, largely focusing on Africa. So I, I have a question to you both, actually. Um, I'm just curious how you all are seeing the, the shape up as far as our, our domestic priorities with regard to food and some of the constraints or challenges that are happening in the U.S. versus our global obligations. Um, I know that um, there's obviously the issue of malnutrition, but there's also the issue of obesity and things along the spectrum that a lot of different communities might be representing at the summit. So can you all both talk to a little bit about how do we balance those um, those two areas? Okay, well, maybe uh, I'll kick us off. Uh, so I, I think that the common common theme between malnutrition and uh, obesity and other uh, nutrition-related issues domestically and internationally, uh, f- uh, we need to focus on access and affordability. Um, and so uh, I think that, um, and there are a lot of sort of root causes of both. Um, I mean, in the U.S., we have issues of food deserts um, and uh, access to uh, to healthy food, but it's also uh, the affordability. And and um, when we first started talking about Feed the Future um, after the 2007-2008 uh, food crisis, MCC's position on food security was um, food security is money in people's pocket because if people have money in their pocket, they make a choice whether they produce the food or whether they, they, they purchase it because 
somebody else might have a comparative advantage in producing that food. Um, but I think that we're, we're facing that right now in the U.S., uh, that uh, wages uh, are not uh, allowing people to uh, be able to afford cost of living, especially in urban centers. Um, and um, that, that, that is an issue worldwide is urbanization. Uh, Africa was the last uh, continent, if you will, to where the scale has tipped. And now more than 50% of Africa's population lives in urban centers. Uh, and for those of us who have been in mega cities in, in Africa or worldwide, uh, you know that uh, you know people come to the cities, but there's not necessarily good uh, urban planning, et cetera. And so, um, so there's also the the dynamic that's happened over the last few years of the transition of poor people moving f- uh, from rural settings to urban settings, and uh, that creates new challenges uh, for accessing and affording uh, nutrition, nutritious food. Um, And so I I think that uh, as we look at um, how to produce good food, um, we do have to uh, focus on issues of, of uh, agricultural policies by governments we also have to focus on uh, issues such as uh, ag research that can sustain, uh, for example, soil fertility. We need to help farmers not just improve their production techniques, um, uh, but also more sustainable use of natural resources, especially water. Um, and then kind of moving along the, the, the value chain, we also have to look at um, how, to, how to store food uh, in a sanitary and safe way um, so that um, from the farmer's perspective, they can sell when they want to and not when they have to, but also so that you can uh, flatten out kind of the, uh, the ebbs and flows of production that then leads to malnutrition. If, uh, if you have crops that, uh, that spoil because they haven't been stored properly, then you have periods of, of famine in certain countries. So I know that was kind of a convoluted <laughs> answer from my perspective, but, no, um, but yeah. I think, I think the, the common theme, I, I think uh, both domestically and internationally is both access and affordability. And so I think uh, it is a challenge to, to strike that balance, but I, I think it's something that we need to work on. That's great. I agree. Yeah. I would just reinforce what Kat said and, add a couple of examples from the US that I think we 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 really should be very very proud of but I will come back and reiterate what Kat said of to me the fundamental issue is the food system currently the food system globally is wired so it's cheap i mean we basically have uh, unhealthy fats sugar and salt are incredibly cheap and because of our evolutionary biology most of that most of our history, <laughs> those were things which were incredibly rare. So we are wired, hardwired to crave those. So unless we change that dynamic where, in fact, healthier foods, both healthy to address undernutrition as well as healthy to have uh, less impacts on overweight and obesity, so that they are actually accessible, both through the, the parts of the food system that can 
described in terms of making them more affordable vis-a-vis unhealthy choices, but then also working with social protection for those people when there's still a gap that those people who need a leg up can get it. And I think, you know, there are a few examples in the U.S. that I think are incredibly enlightening and very applicable. Um, you know, we are one of the countries that invest continually in, in Haynes of understanding what are people eating, what's the nutritional status, and a- adjusting our policies accordingly. We have one of the longest standing social protection programs and the WIC program targeting pregnant lactating women and infants and young kids, understanding that good nutrition in that period is so fundamental. And, and then also uh, what many consumers in the U.S. don't know that if we don't have problems of deficiencies in essential vitamins and minerals, it's probably not because the three of us are so incredibly enlightened in terms of our consumption habits, but almost everything we eat is fortified with these essential vitamins and minerals. And these are things that one can do in the food system, some of them very quickly, that um, can, can, can really transform the people's ability to access healthy food. Uh, and so while there, I, I don't think we should be looking at undernutrition, overweight and obesity so much as a dichotomy of understanding these are systems issues and how do we work at the systems level, particularly the food systems, to help address them. I'm going to jump in on, on Sean's last point there um, on uh, I, I keep mentioning policies uh, and institutional uh, reforms that are required. Um, and in so many of MCC partner countries, we see that government policy around uh, agricultural production, especially around large cash crops, uh, basically distort the whole uh, agricultural economy um, and uh, create disincentives for producers to move into uh, diverse crops that could diversify people's diets and enhance nutrition. Um, and so, uh, you know, MCC, we, we like to say we build things. Um, but another part is that uh, I think the investment in infrastructure that we make, we use as kind of leverage to then change policy and institutional uh, situations so that they can improve uh, not only agricultural yields and agricultural production, but improve uh, nutrition. Agreed. I want to just build off that because, you know, in so much of life, there are trade-offs. And this is an area where, in fact, it may be much more of a win-win-win. And in discussions with Rob Bertram, Aisha, whom you know well, of the chief scientist of the Bureau of Resilience and Food Security at USAID, as we adjust agricultural policies, both with our partner governments and internally to USAID, um, while of course one wants to continue to improve yields of staple crops, in fact, we've gained a lot. Uh, When you're looking at the farmers and their ability to gain income, the amount of additional economic growth you're going to get out of staple crops is somewhat limited. What that does is frees up incredible potential to produce more of these perishable, high-value, high-nutrient foods. And so, it's not that we're going to say, oh, we need to move out of staples and that's, that there's a trade-off here. It's actually a win-win-win because by improving staple productivity and yields, we actually free up resources that we can focus on more of these nutrient-dense crops, be it animal source foods, fruits and vegetables, legumes, etc. But it comes back 
also very much then to Kat's problem, because if we don't have the means for these farmers to get these goods to market, local markets, urban markets, then it's not a win. But it can become a real virtuous cycle. Uh, and, and so I'm optimistic that this is an area of the food systems where we can deliver on better nutrition, deliver on better jobs, and deliver on better on economic growth, and probably deliver on more, uh, in fact, uh, better stewardship of our, our productive resources. So um, it's pretty exciting to be faced with a problem where there are lots solutions that are, are wins all around. So I, let me just take us in a direction where, and, and this might be a, an actual example we could talk a little bit about too, with McGovern Dole and uh, some of the efforts that USDA has done to try to do school feeding globally, I'm curious, Sean, how you have helped um, from an interagency perspective to potentially influence not just their their reach, but their impact. Um, it seems like a prime example of a program where we could really scale it in a way that can be both um, helping us to uh, lower food insecurity, but also to really increase nutrition. And so I was curious if you could talk a little bit about uh, that program in particular. Um, and then I think we do need to talk about conflict, which is the fourth C that we didn't raise earlier. Um, so I would open the floor for us to talk a little bit about resilience and and frankly, how are we doing when it comes to making sure that, again, we're pushing out food to incredibly difficult areas, um, but not just food, but good food? So let me start with McGovern and Dole and school feeding programs. Um, I think um, th certainly the global nutrition community started, to my mind, a revolution back in 2008 with understanding of the most damage is done in that thousand-day window from uh, conception through uh, the child's second birthday. Or, as I put it more optimistically, if we do the right thing in that period, we really lock in that survival and potential. But that being said, it's been recognized for a long time that one of the most powerful generational investments you can make is girls' education. Well, two, two things, delaying age of first pregnancy and keeping girls in school helps a lot, and girls' education. Um, there, I just read an article um, that was published by the International Food Policy Research Institute that took advantage of the vast sets of data in India, which has one of the world's largest school feeding programs, which indicated it had some insights, and of course, these were not RCTs, but it really did a lot of innovative triangulation of the data to look at for those uh, mothers who, in, when their school going, were exposed to high-quality school feeding programs. In fact, their children were less at risk of stunting. Now, there are multiple pathways, so it's clear that what, what I take away is that if there's a level of intensity of good performance of school feeding programs by improving uh, school attendance, uptake of school by the most vulnerable populations, ensuring they can they, they succeed at school and keeping them in school, that has knock-on effects. So uh, in, uh, it's clear that obviously girls' education has good impacts. I think where we're working together to see what addition can do, could even bit more nutrition out of those programs. 
One is the hypothesis that a lot of your um, habits around nutrition and health in general, in fact, are in those school years. Uh, and how do you actually, as you are delivering healthy school meals, make sure you're also delivering a good health and nutrition curriculum in those schools and taking full advantage, both to format the parents of the future, but then also that knock-on effect that they will have in the, all, in the rest of the community. And then I think uh, looking within McGovern Dole of is there an ability not just to look at the school-age kids, but in those own communities, a company that with these community nutrition programs, which are really addressing the nutrition needs of pregnant lactating moms and young kids, so that in fact you're creating a generation of kids in that same community who are much more ready to go to school and take full advantage of school. So I think... There's potential all around. It obviously is already doing good work. Uh, and I think there's scope for it to do even more. I just want to add to uh, to what Sean said. Um, and um, uh, you're singing my song when you talk about girls' education and the importance of girls' education, both on uh, family planning, uh, but also on life expectancy for the entire family, since uh, women are caregivers for the family. And we've certainly seen that uh, impact uh, during COVID. Um, I just want to add one uh, minor point, uh, and that is um, the linkage between female entrepreneurship and school feeding programs, for example, in, uh, in our partner countries. Um, uh, we saw one example in uh, Indonesia where um, there, were, uh, there were women entrepreneurs who were producing um, uh, uh, baked bowls made out of uh, 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 cassava. It was like shredded and then baked into forms. Um, and their main client was the school feeding program. And so you had, uh, you had opportunity for women entrepreneurs who, uh, let's face it, they're closer in the community to uh, their children's schools and what's happening at the school level. But it also created an opportunity for them to sell to the school feeding program. Uh, and it created a uh, natural and biodegradable plate uh, for the kids to actually uh, consume the lunch, but then they could even consume the plate if they wanted to. And if they didn't, uh, it was biodegradable. So I would just add that um, supporting women's entrepreneurship is also, uh, they make good partners for school feeding programs uh, across the globe. That's great, Kat. And I think, um, I think you guys are both right. Obviously, we're dealing with a host of different issues and we're looking at how we can target and support particularly vulnerable populations. Um, and I think Feed the Future has also done a great pivot with regard to that as well and, and its elevation of resilience. Um, as we kind of step into this conversation around conflict, I'm curious, Sean, if you could talk a little bit about, you know, obviously it's Feed the Future's 10th anniversary. Um, and we want to make sure that we, um, I mean, we, we at MCC have been a good partner in this interagency kind of collaboration. And so we thank you all for that opportunity, um, as far as USAID is concerned. Um, but I do think that, you know, for a long time, we've been trying to support and think through how do we, um, you know, really support with resilience activities, um, that, that bridge between uh, food aid and its need and then food secure and people actually creating 
um, long-term livelihoods. And so can we talk about that and in particular talk about how difficult that is um, maybe for pastoralists or for folks who are in really volatile areas where there is conflict? Thanks for that. Um, many pieces in that question, Aisha, which is not unusual for you to pack a question full of full of different aspects. I want I want to step back, and I I, I would I want to step back first about the the true humanitarian settings, and one of the things that uh, I, I've appreciated many things in this position. One is to get more insights and in just the leadership of our Bureau of Humanitarian Assistance on improving the quality of food aid, uh, both general rations, but particularly specialized products and improving the pipeline, really uh, harmonizing standards. So I think, you know, the food assistance of today is vastly superior in terms of nutrient content than it was uh, several decades ago. And I would immodestly say that is due in very large part to U.S. leadership. Um, and getting smarter, more nutritious. Um, the the point around, I think we still struggle overall as a development community, and in fact, our partner governs as much of this artificial divide between humanitarian assistance and quote unquote development settings. And if you look at where so many countries that USAID operates through Feed the Future other programs, in fact, they are exposed to different conflicts even if it's not the whole country. And I think where we need to understand is how do you work with systems, both government systems, civil society systems, to be able to maintain resilience of delivery of key services, be they health services, nutrition services, ag extension services, even when the security constraints don't allow your, your more normal development programming to go on. Um, but then also, and you raised, I think, to me, a very specific issue that uh, is something that concerns me a great deal, having spent so much of my life in the Sahel in Africa, of what had historically been incredibly um, um, peaceful coexistence between pastoralists and sedentary farmers with increasing demographic pressures, land pressures, that becomes more and more conflictual. So how does one work with those populations to actually intensify production, respecting traditional life, but doing it in a way that actually reinforces those traditional bonds and takes out the competition? And I think these are the, this is the sort of programming that needs uh, both the innovation, the technology, but deep roots in understanding the community and how do you work with communities to solve these problems? Uh, I just want to add to what Sean mentioned about uh, working with communities to solve problems, uh, because in, additional to in addition to physical conflict, uh, we also uh, are seeing the need for resilience when it comes to climate events. Um, and that's true both of uh, drought, drought in the Sahel or monsoons and flooding uh, in other regions. Um, and um, one of the areas in my portfolio is gender and social inclusion. And as we know, uh, a lot of times uh, women headed households have less financial resources to then 
move to safer areas. Um, and so it's not only safer areas, but it's also areas where they can produce more food and feed their children. And so I think as we talk about resilience, we need to expand that uh, discussion to not only include um, physical uh, security and physical conflict, but but also the uh, impact of uh, climate events. Absolutely. Well, we are running out of time. And so I just wanted to give you all an opportunity for some parting thoughts. And thank you both for such an informed conversation and discussion. Um, Sean, I know it's a make or break year for nutrition. It just is, right? Um, and it was before we were moving into COVID and, and looking at COVID climate conflict, et cetera. So um, I want to thank you for all of your work that you do um, and just offer up uh, any any final parting thoughts for us, any challenge that you want to throw out to us at all? Um, thank you for that, Aisha. And thank you both Aisha and Kat for inviting me to this podcast. Um, Nelson Mandela uh, reflected on the Millennium Development Goals. Uh, and there's a quote from him that haunts me. Uh, he queried us, will our generation's legacy be more than a series of broken promises? In nutrition, through the World Health Assembly targets, through the SDG2 target, the aspiration to eliminate all forms of malnutrition by 2030, as a global community, we've made incredible promises to end the scourge of malnutrition. This is the year which is, I think, going to tell the truth. Are we serious about these promises? Are we going to break them? And I don't want our legacy to be more broken promises. Wow, I mean, we, okay. I think those are parting words to end on. So thank you both um, so much. And um, please stay tuned for yet another great podcast with MCC next month. Um, but thank you to you both and um, Onward for Nutrition. Thanks. Thank you for listening to On Development. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you prefer. And to learn more about MCC, please visit www.mcc.gov.